Well, something important to note about Jesus' ministry is who he spent a majority of his time ministering to when he was here on this earth. And we've now looked at 14 chapters in the Gospel of Luke, and you probably noticed that Jesus spends a majority of his time ministering to those who were labeled as the sinners uh, of his day, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the, the drunkards, the thieves. He, he spent a lot of time investing in them, a lot of time ministering to them. And I think something else important to note is not only did Jesus go out of his way to reach these people, but you know what? They were drawn to him. We see that those people were attracted to Jesus. Sinful people were drawn to Jesus. They wanted to spend time with him, and I think they recognized that Jesus truly loved them. Uh, and so, you know, that love for them just drew them to Jesus. But something else that you've probably noted in these last 14 chapters, the, the group that's really opposed to Jesus in almost everything are the religious leaders, the Pharisees. And, and you probably noted that, you know what, the sinful people of their day were the people that the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with. They didn't spend time with them. They didn't try to invest in them. They didn't try to reach them. They just wanted to keep them at, their, you know, at a distance from them. They didn't want to be near them. They didn't want to be, you know, uh, in their mindset, made unclean by them. And so they just, they didn't love them. They just would sit there and judge them, and they would look down upon them. And it's not surprising that Pharisees didn't attract the sinful people. They repelled the sinful people. They didn't want anything to do with the Pharisees. They weren't drawn to them. They didn't want to come and be judged and be looked down upon and be thought of as worse than. Now, since the Pharisees didn't love or minister to lost sinful people, since they didn't want anything to do with them, they didn't like the fact that Jesus did. They didn't like the fact that Jesus spent the majority of his time with these lost sinful people. And so we're going to see here now at the start of chapter 15 of Luke, they're going to pose a criticism to Jesus of, why is it you spend so much time with these sinful people, Jesus? And Jesus is going to respond to this accusation, to this complaint, with three parables. These three parables are really uh, sharing the reason why. Why does Jesus spend time with lost sinners? He's going to answer that with these Parables. Now, these three parables that we see here in chapter 15 are three of the most well-known parables that Jesus taught. We have the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the most famous of all, the parable of the lost son, or as it's better known as, the prodigal son. Chapter 15 is one of my favorite chapters in the Gospel of Luke, and the reason it is is because it reveals the heart of God for those who are lost in their sin. I think this chapter should bring us great comfort, but you know, it's also a challenge. It's a challenge to say, you know what, do we have the heart of God for people who are lost in their sins? Because the Pharisees did not, and Jesus in his parables are going to be showing what the true heart of God for people who are lost in their sin is, and showing the Pharisees that they actually didn't have that for people who were lost in their sins. And so I think there's a lot we can learn from this chapter. So chapter 15 starting in verse 1, says this. <clears throat> then all the tax collectors and sinners drew near to Jesus to hear him, and the Pharisees and scribes complained, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. So as we normally see, crowds come and gather around Jesus, but Luke specifically tells us who this crowd is made up of. Notice what he says. It's full of a bunch of sinners and tax collectors, the people that the Pharisees wanted nothing to do with, the people that the Pharisees thought were so uh, horrible. And so they're drawn to Jesus. 
They're not repelled by Jesus. They want to hear him. They want to hear what Jesus has to say. And so they come to listen to Jesus. Well, the scribes and Pharisees, they see that Jesus is willing to teach these people. They see that Jesus is willing to spend time with these people. They see that Jesus is willing to eat with these people. And so they say, this man, speaking of Jesus, receives sinners and eats with them. You know, the scribes thought it was horrible that Jesus would do that. Horrible that he would receive sinners. Horrible that he would eat with sinners. Horrible that he would share with sinners. Because that's not something that they would ever do. They didn't spend time with them. They didn't eat with them. They didn't try to share the word of God with them. They didn't try to reach out to them. They just try to keep them at arm's length. And so they're disgusted with the fact that Jesus would do this. And so they pose this complaint. Why do you do this? Why do you spend time eating with sinful people? You know, it's interesting to me because these religious leaders, these Pharisees, they, they really treated these people this way because they saw themselves in a very different place. Oh, we are these holy, righteous people that you know, are, are right with God, and you know, we're the religious people, and you guys are the, the wicked sinners who you know, don't have any right to have a relationship with God. They saw themselves as so holy and so righteous, and everyone else is so sinful. But the problem is, as Jesus has confronted them many times and shown them, the reality is they're sinful. They're wretched. They need Jesus just as much as the people that they look down upon need Jesus. But they didn't see that. They saw themselves in a light that wasn't accurate. And that's why Jesus so often calls them hypocrites. You want to be seen as these super spiritual people, but the reality is you're not. You look down on all these other people who you claim are not spiritual like you, but the reality is you're just as lost as they are. Romans 3.23 tells us something that's so important for us to note. For all, all, have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That all includes the Pharisees, includes religious people. Every single person in this world is a sinner according to God. Every single person has fallen short of God's perfect standard. None of us can attain that. We're all in the same boat. And so to think, oh, I'm so much more superior than you, so much better than you, is just a false concept, a false belief, because the reality is we're all sinners, we're all lost, and the only way to be saved is to put our faith in Jesus Christ. For those of us who have repented of our sins, who have accepted what Jesus had did, did for us by dying on the cross, we need to be careful not to approach those who are still lost in their sins the way that the Pharisees did. You know, too often Christians deal with lost sinful people like the Pharisees did here in the time of Jesus, with this attitude that, you know what, we're better than them, we're, we're the good religious people, we're the ones who go to church and they're just the horrible sinful people who do all these sinful things, and so we reject them, we repel them, we don't try to reach them, we don't love them, we don't you know, want anything to do with them. But the reality is, we're sinners just like them. The only difference is we've accepted the way that God has provided for us to be saved. We've accepted Jesus Christ. We've accepted that free gift of salvation. And they have yet to do so. That's the real difference. And now God is changing us. And yes, our lives are different because of it. But the reality is we still sin, just like them. The difference is we've accepted Christ and they haven't. So to have this superiority complex, to have this I'm so much better than you mindset that, that causes us to say, I don't want you. I don't want to reach out to you. I don't want you anywhere near me. And sadly, in many churches, I don't want you coming into our church. It's just a pharisaical mindset, not the way that God wants us to reach the lost. You know, I read a story that I think does a good job of showing this pharisaical mindset that Christians often have when it comes to sinful people. 
They're two families. They, they live next door to one another. One family uh, is very different than the other. There was a Christian family. First family was a Christian family. They took care of their house. They never used drugs. They never got drunk. They, they never swore or fought loudly with one another. Their kids were never in trouble with the law, and they all went to church every Sunday. The second family was the exact opposite. They had nothing to do with God. Their house was a mess. They used drugs. They partied all the time. They swore, they fought loudly with none another, their kids were always getting trouble in the law, and they never went to church. One day, the teenage daughter comes home, tells her mom, Mom, uh, I think there's trouble with our neighbors. I hear the, the parents of the school saying that her parents are, are getting divorced, and, and one of their kids is now in trouble with the law, and now they're going to move. Her mother nods her head, knowing the situation, and, and responds her saying, you know, that's what they get for living like they do. That's what they get for not coming to church and doing the things that we do. Let that be a lesson in your case if you ever don't go to church. I sure hope we get some decent neighbors in there after they're gone. The response of this mother to the neighbors is so sad. The response is so often we have to lost people in the church where it's just like, you know what? We don't, oh, we just get another group that's so much more you know, moral and godly and who cares about them? Notice that the family never really tried to reach this lost group. But that's not what we see with Jesus. He always reached out to the lost, and he rejoiced when they repented. And that's the kind of heart that he wants us to have towards those who are lost. You know, I grew up in a church that I would say did not really have a very big heart for lost people. And their mindset was, when I grew up, didn't really get it, but I, I, I realized there was something wrong with it. And the mindset was, you know what, when you change your life, when you stop sinning, when you get your life all sorted out, then you're welcome to come here and be a part of our church. Go sort yourself out, and then you can come. That was the, the mindset. And if you were to dare walk through those doors before sorting your life out, with still all the sin issues that you have, you can bet that the, the judgmental looks and, and the mindset that was coming to you would be not very welcoming. You'd be feeling very unwelcome and repelled by these people. If you didn't come in your Sunday best suit and come looking the part, man, you would see the glares from people of how dare you come into our place of worship. You know, and I just never really could put my finger on it growing up in that, of why that was wrong, and I rebelled against the Lord, and when I came into a different church, Calvary Chapel, the one thing that I really found was so welcoming was, you know what, they had a mindset of, come as you are. You know what, you can come as you are. We don't care what background you have. You come, and we'll introduce you to Jesus. Because we recognize, you know what, you can try all you want to change and get your life sorted, but you never will until you come to know who Jesus is and accept him into your life. And so we want to invite you, no matter where you're at, no matter what sin you're going through, come here to our church so that we can introduce you to the one who can change your life. And it was a, a place where sinful people felt like welcomed. They would come in and they would hear the truth of the word of God. And they would hear the gospel message and it was something that impacted me greatly, and I rededicated my life to the Lord there, but, you know, God's heart is that we would reach out to the lost, not repel them, not reject them, but try to share with them the good news of what Jesus has done. So these scribes and the Pharisees, they, they, they complain that Jesus is receiving and eating sinful, eating with, not eating sinful people, but eating with sinful people, uh, and this isn't the first time that they've done this. Uh, if you notice, uh, remember back in Luke chapter 5, they give another accusation like this, starting in verse 30. It said, And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus said to them, 
Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. You know, back in chapter 5, when this question was posed to Jesus of, why do you do this? Why do you spend time with sinful people? Why do you eat with them? Notice his response, because it's so important to understand the reason he does this. He tells them, I haven't come. Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Jesus' heart was to reach people who were lost. He came for that purpose. He wants to reveal to them their need for him. Well, now in chapter 15, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're still complaining about the same thing. This man receives sinners, and he eats with them. What's wrong with you? Well, Jesus now is going to respond to their complaint with three parables. And within these three parables, Jesus shows the scribes and Pharisees why he eats with tax collectors and sinners, why he spends time with them. And within each of these three parables, Jesus is going to focus on three different groups. First, he's going to focus on God and his heart toward lost sinners. Second, he's going to focus on lost sinners and their need to repent. And third, he's going to focus on the self-righteous people like the Pharisees who are angered that God would reach out and forgive lost sinners. So let's start with the first two parables, and then we'll get into the third, which is the most famous of all, the parable uh, of the prodigal son. Verse 3 says this, So he spoke this parable to them, saying, What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he loses one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine in the wilderness and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. I say to you, that likewise, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. The next parable. Or what woman, having ten silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and search carefully until she finds it? And when she has found it, she calls her friends and neighbors together, saying, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I lost. Likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Both of these two parables are are making the same point, but Jesus uses two different illustrations, each one of them to connect better with his audience. His audience was broken up with men and women. The first parable that he shares is directed to men. That's why he starts it with, what man? And notice the parable is focused on a shepherd. And in that time, shepherds were men. Uh, So he's given an illustration, a parable that men would relate to. And so he starts focusing on the men. The illustration of the second parable is directed to the women of Jesus' day. And that's why he starts out with, what woman? Now, many commentators believe that when Jesus speaks of the woman's ten silver coins... He is referring to a specific ornament that only married women wore. In that day, you would have this uh, uh, ornament that you put around your head, and it would be full of silver coins. Obviously, this one, Jesus is saying, it had ten of them on it, which would mean if you were to lose one of those, would be much more significant than just losing a random silver coin that you had to pay your bills. This was something like losing a diamond out of your wedding ring. It was something that was very significant to this woman. And so the first illustration is focusing uh, towards the men, and the second one to the women. But both of these parables are ultimately making the same point. They have three important elements. First, we see someone losing something that has great value to them. 
The shepherd loses one of his sheep, which he greatly valued, and the woman loses one of her silver coins, which she greatly valued. Second, we see the person who lost something doing everything in their power to find the thing that they lost. The shepherd leaves the 99 sheep in search for that one sheep that was lost, doing everything he can to find it. And that woman turns her house upside down to search and find that lost coin until she finds it. Third, we see the person finds what they lost, and their response is that they rejoice and they tell all of their friends so their friends can rejoice with them as well. When the shepherd found the sheep that was lost, he rejoiced. He called his friends and neighbors, and he said to them, Rejoice with me, for I have found my sheep which was lost. When the woman found the coin that was lost, she rejoiced and called her friends and neighbors and said, Rejoice with me, for I have found the peace which I have lost. And at the end of both of these parables, Jesus reveals the spiritual points. Remember, parables are just that. They're, they're practical illustrations, ultimately, to make a spiritual point. And so Jesus uses an illustration that would be familiar with, like shepherds and a woman's uh, you know, silver coins, and then he draws a spiritual point to it. At the end of the parable of the lost sheep, Jesus says, I say to you that likewise there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine just persons who need no repentance. And at the end of the parable with the lost coin, Jesus says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. So in these two parables, I want you to understand who represents what. The shepherd and the woman, they represent God. The sheep and the coin represent lost sinners. Being found represents the repentance of the lost sinner from their sins. And the rejoicing of the shepherd and the woman and all their friends is representing of God and all the angels in heaven rejoicing over these lost sinners who come to repentance. In both of these parables, Jesus is revealing the heart of God to those who are lost in their sin. He's showing the scribes and Pharisees why he spends so much time ministering to them, that accusation. Why do you spend time with sinful people? Well, here's why. Because the heart of God is to reach sinful people, and I am God, and I have that heart for them. These first two parables reveal that God does have a huge heart for lost sinners. Just like the shepherd and the woman in this parable, he diligently seeks after those who are lost. He wants to encounter them. He wants to reach them. He wants them to know how much he loves them and what he's done for them. Now the scribes and the Pharisees, they didn't see God in this way. They didn't believe that God sought after sinners. They believed that God was more like them, who just wanted sinners to stay away from him. They didn't believe that God would have anything to do with sinful people. And if a sinner sought God, they believed that God would reject them, just like they did. The only people that they believed God would seek and accept were people like them, religious Jews who sought to uphold the law. Those are the only people that God will accept. Those are the only people that God wants. So ultimately they believed that God's approach to lost sinners was the same as theirs. They believed God didn't want anything to do with lost sinners. And that's why they had a problem with Jesus spending time with them. God doesn't do that, Jesus. We don't do that, Jesus. So why do you spend time with these lost sinful people? Well, the problem that they had is they didn't understand the heart of God for the lost. Jesus is God, and he reveals to them and to us God's heart for lost people. When he was first challenged with spending time with sinners back in chapter 5, he reveals that he came to seek and to save, to help them come to repentance because he loves them. Here in chapter 15, the same challenge, 
God seeks out, just like the shepherd sought out the 99 and the woman sought out the coin, he seeks out lost people in order to save them and bring them to repentance. Well, you know, this is not the last time that we're going to see in the Gospel of Luke. The same accusation is going to come to Jesus one more time in chapter 19. And in chapter 19, we have a familiar individual named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a chief tax collector, one of the big sinners of the time there, and that people hated and despised because he ripped them off and was basically a thief. And Zacchaeus, Jesus comes and says, I'm going to your house today. Jesus invites himself over to Zacchaeus' house for dinner. And during that dinner experience, I want you to notice what happens in verse 8 of chapter 19. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, 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 I give half of my gifts to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he is also a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Here we see Zacchaeus truly repentant. I'm going to give back to everyone way more than I took for them. I have repented of my sin. And Jesus says, hey, you know what? This guy is now saved. But notice how Jesus ends this experience with Zacchaeus. He says, today has salvation has come to this house. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Each time there's this accusation against Jesus of why do you spend time with sinners? Each time he comes back with the, I'll tell you why, because I came for them. That's the purpose of me being here. I came to seek and save those who are lost. I've come to give my life for the sins of the world. So why wouldn't I reach out to lost sinners? That's my whole purpose in being here. This should be a huge encouragement to those of us who have family and friends that aren't saved. You know, I have many people that I you know, am desperate to see come to know Jesus Christ, come to accept the salvation that he offers. But something that I'm even more confident in, God has a bigger desire to see them saved than I do. He has a bigger heart of love for them than I do. He wants them more than me. And that's encouraging to me because as I, I desire to see them come to know that I know that he is seeking to continue to reach them and reveal himself to them and pour his love upon them because he desires to seek and to save those who are lost. One of the problems that people who are lost have is they don't recognize they're lost. That's their issue. And it's usually those people who think, I'm pretty religious, or I'm a pretty good person, like the Pharisees did. They didn't recognize that they were sinful, lost people. They thought, we're good people. We're religious people. We got everything right with us and God, and so we don't need a Savior. We're good. You know what? And you talk with most people today, why would God allow you into heaven? And their answer is, well, I'm a good person. My good outweighs my bad. There's this belief that, you know what, I'm not really a lost sinner. Yeah, I know some people who are pretty messed up and some people who have some big issues. And surely they need a Savior, but not me, because I'm a good person. And they miss the reality that we already noted earlier on, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is no such thing as a good person who lives up to the standard that God has established. We are all lost sinners. And the problem is, before you recognize your need for a Savior, you need to recognize that you're lost in sin. That you're a sinner who needs a Savior to save you. Isaiah chapter 53, an amazing prophetic chapter about Christ says this in verse 6, All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, speaking of Christ, the iniquity of us all. 
Just like all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, here in Isaiah he reveals that all of us, including the Pharisees, were like sheep who have gone astray, like those sheep here in the parable, lost sinners that strayed from God, that need to repent and get forgiveness from God. So one of the Pharisees' biggest problems is they didn't see themselves as lost sinners who needed to repent and get right with God. And because they didn't recognize that, they never did. And that's a sad reality with so many people today. Until they recognize they need a Savior, they stay lost for the most part. Until you understand, I'm sinful and I'm lost and I need someone to save me and there's a consequence to my sin, which is hell, then there's no real reason to reach out to a Savior. Well, I don't need to be saved. I'm a good person. What do I need to be saved from? God's will let me into heaven because my good will outweigh my bad. No. The Bible doesn't say that. The Bible says we're all sinful people, and the only way into heaven is to accept the free gift of what Jesus has done for us. I think this is so important why we need to share the gospel completely. I mentioned this many times, but too often we just say, you know what, Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. That's nice and sounds great, but it doesn't start with the most important message of the bad news first. You're a lost sinner, and so was I. And the only way to not be a lost sinner is to accept what Jesus did for you. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he has a wonderful plan for your life. And let me demonstrate how he loved you. He loved you by giving his life for you. The reason he had to is because you're a lost sinner. We have to start with the bad news so that someone recognizes why the gospel, the good news, is good. It's only good because we see that we are sinful people. So the first two parables have three important elements. Something is lost, which represents the lost sinner. Then it's found, which represents repentance. And then there's great rejoicing, which represents God and all of heaven and what they do when sinful people repent of their sin. They rejoice in that. Well, the third parable that Jesus shares has the same three important elements, but there's a little bit of a a difference. First of all, there's a lot more detail. The lost son, the father, the the different experiences, there's more detail. But the most important thing about this next parable is that there's a whole other group. A whole other group that Jesus is going to speak of, and it's the group that is demonstrated by the older brother. And it's the group speaking of the Pharisees, the ones who don't want to accept lost sinners. So that's going to be the main difference here that we see in this final parable here in Luke chapter 15, starting in verse 11. Then Jesus said, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided to them his livelihood. And not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land that he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare? And I perish with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. 
But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to be married. So Jesus starts this parable revealing that a father has two sons. And the younger son says to the father, Father, I want to have my inheritance now. Now before we get into this parable, I want us to make sure we understand which uh, different character is represented. The father represents God. The younger son who asked for his inheritance represents the lost sinner. And the older brother in this parable represents the self-righteous Pharisees. So this younger brother, he asked for his inheritance, and normally when you receive an inheritance, just like today, you don't get it until your parents die. And so he's saying, you know, Dad, I want my inheritance now. Not when you die, I want to have it right now. And so the father decides to give both his son their inheritance. Now the reason the son wanted his inheritance early is because he ultimately wanted to get out of his father's house, he wanted to go out and party, wanted to go live it up, wanted to go experience the way in which the world lives. We're told that after he got his inheritance, that he journeyed to a far country, and there he wasted his possessions on prodigal living. That word prodigal is where we get the title for the prodigal son. Now this term prodigal, the Greek word translated prodigal, means wasteful, wild, abandoned, reckless living. So the son lived a real reckless party Lifestyle. He was living in sin. He wanted to get away from his father's house, away from his father's rules, away from all the different things that he probably felt bound him down, kept him from having fun, and he wanted to go out and experience the world. He wanted to go out and party it up, and so that's exactly what he did. You know, I think many young people today have this same desire. They want to get out of their parents' house. They want to get out and experience what seems to be something that's so enjoyable. They see it on TV. They see all the parties. They see all the relationships. They see all the drugs and everything. They think, that sounds good. That looks great. My parents are holding me back and keeping me from fun. And so they want to break free from that like this young man did. I was one of those kids. Perhaps some of you were as well. When I was 15, I thought, you know what, life would be so much more fun if I could get away from my parents' rules and regulations. All my friends are partying and look so great and enjoyable. And so I went into that lifestyle, went into doing those things, thinking, oh, this is so great, I'm going to go and drink and do drugs, and, and it's going to be so wonderful. And that party lifestyle that I thought would bring me happiness, I soon discovered did not. It leaves you empty. It leaves you miserable. It leaves you lonely. Notice that once this son runs out of money, these friends that partied with him, that were with him all the time when he was loaded with money, his money's gone, and guess where they are? They're gone as well. They don't say, hey, come stay with me, and we'll keep partying. It's like, you got no more money. See ya. We don't want to be with you anymore. And now he's just left on his own in this foreign place, in this thought of, oh, I'm going to have all this money. I'm going to have all this fun. I'm going to go party and do all this stuff. He finds out the hard way. That ultimately the rules in the home are there to protect him. And he went out. And he's miserable. And so he has to go get a job. And notice the job that he has to get. He goes out and gets a job feeding pigs. 
Now, for us today, we probably think that would be a bad job. I wouldn't want to go have to feed some smelly pigs all day. But for a Jew, and I'm sure everyone listening to this parable would just be like, oh, because Jews, they didn't eat pigs, they didn't touch pigs, they didn't go around pigs. Pigs were unclean animals. So to have to have a job where you spend all your day with pigs was just an unclean, filthy experience. And so this boy now has to lower himself to a job that I'm sure he never thought he would ever have to do. And it all comes back to this choice to go live this party lifestyle. And as he's there feeding these pigs and super hungry, he says, you know what? He would have loved to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs ate, this nasty food that the pigs ate. He would have eaten that, but no one gave him anything. He's starving, and he's there in this place. And the son finally comes to his senses, and he realizes, you know what? My father's servant had it better than this. Why am I here with pigs starving? At least if I go home and I'm one of my father's servants, they have plenty of food. He takes care of them well, much better than I'm being taken care of here. So he determines to go back to his father and repent of his sin. And he's got it all worked out what he's going to say. Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And I'm sure as he's traveling back, he's thinking through his mind and, and practicing you know, this, this line that he's going to give of his repentance. And, and, and he realizes, and I blew it. I don't even deserve to be your son anymore after what I've done. But, but please, just make me one of your servants. It, it'll be, my life will still be better than, than what it is right now. The son left home demanding his rights, and now he returns home in humility and repentance. You know, I think this son shows what true repentance is, and I I want us to note four things that we see here with this son that demonstrates true repentance. We're told that he came to his senses. First, true repentance always begins by seeing our sinful condition for what it truly is. That's where it starts. We've got to recognize our sin for what it is if we're really going to repent of it. So often we don't really see it for what it is, and we kind of like to sugarcoat it, and, and we like to you know, think that it's not really as bad as it is, and we just need to recognize it is what it is. It's truly sinful, and come to it in that way. He realized he had done something horrible. He thought about the fact that his servants in his father's house were happier than he, so he says, you know, I'm going to go back to my father, and he turns away from his sin, and he turns back to his father. Second, True repentance is always turning away from our sin to God himself. That's so key. Sorry is a feeling, an emotion. And we kind of connect them together. Sorry and repentance are the same thing. No, they're not. You can be sorry and not repentant. You can be sorry that you're caught. You can be sorry and have an emotion that feels guilty, but it doesn't mean that you've turned away. Repentance is to turn away from that sin, not just a feeling of being sorry for it. Oftentimes we're sorry, but there's no change. God doesn't want us to just be sorry. He wants us to be repentant. He wants us to turn from our sin to him, the one who can forgive and get us past it. And notice the son directs his repentance to his father whom he sinned against. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Third, true repentance must be directed personally towards the God whom we've sinned against. No matter what it is, I might sin against my wife, I might sin against one of you, and I need to repent to you, but ultimately, I'm sinning against God as well. And so as I come to God, it's not just I'm sorry that I did this against an individual, I'm sorry that I've done this against you, because you have set the standard of the way in which I should live, and I've broken that. I've sinned against you. 
I've sinned against heaven in your sight. This is interesting. The son comes to a place, I've sinned against heaven in your sight. Notice he doesn't say, I wouldn't have sinned if you were a better father, or I wouldn't have sinned if you wouldn't have given me the inheritance that you knew I wasn't ready to handle. I wouldn't have sinned if it wasn't for those tempting people who wanted to party with me. I wouldn't have sinned. And, you know, he doesn't make up a bunch of excuses, which is commonly what we do. Go back to the Garden of Eden. God challenges Adam. What'd you do? This woman who you gave me made me do it. Adam only knew two people, God and this woman. He blames them both. And then Eve says, it was a serpent who made me do it. Both of them try to pass the buck, pass the blame, and don't accept responsibility. Yes, I chose to eat of the forbidden fruit. I sinned. No, 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 it wasn't my fault, God. It was someone else's. In our society, man, we don't want to accept responsibility for our actions. It's always someone else's fault, and that's not true repentance. Fourth, true repentance includes an honest confession of sins without any excuses. You're not going to deceive God. He knows exactly your heart, your motive, what happened. You can't try to be, oh, I'm sorry, Lord, but you know, it really wasn't my fault, but I, but I will repent, and you know, it really was so-and-so who made me do it. You know, just be real with him and recognize, yes, I did this. I made this choice. I am responsible, and I need to come and repent because of it. So the son goes back to his father. He's ready to repent. I want you to notice what the father does. This is one of the, the best parts of this story. Verse 20. And he arose and came to his father, and when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven in your sight, and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here and kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son, for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. This is one of the most moving pictures of God in the Bible. Think of how the father could have acted. He could have seen his son off in a distance. And so it's about time that this no-good son of mine returns. I'm going to let him crawl up here on his hands and knees and beg for mercy. Then I'll tell him to go clean himself up before he ever comes into my house. Make sure you get all that filthy pig you know, stuff off of you. I think this is often how we think God will respond to us when we come to him with our sins. He's just waiting to you know, condemn and, you know, oh, how dare you, and I told you so. But that's not the way that God responds at all. When the father sees his son coming, he runs to him, throws his arms around him, and kisses him. He doesn't even let his son get out the full speech. Remember the full speech that he has that he's ready to share, and, oh, I want to be, I'm, I'm not worthy to be your son. You can just make me one of your servants. He starts saying, I'm not worthy to be your son. And the father says, get a robe, get a ring, get some sandals. And those are very significant because those are all show that he is the rightful heir, the son. The ring was a signet ring that only a son could wear. The robe was something that was significant that only the son would get. And so the father is placing these things on him, saying, no, 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 you're not going to be my servant. You are still my son. And then he tells the servants, get the fatted calf, which was reserved for special occasions. And they kill it, and they eat it, and they have this huge celebration. This is a great picture of the abundant mercy that God pours out on repentant sinners. When a sinner repents before God, they're completely freely 
forgiven. All their sins are blotted out and dealt with. You don't have to brace yourself for a big lecture. You don't just have, big, oh, God's going to tell me how stupid I've been. There's no finger wagging or I told you so. There's grace, there's mercy, there's love, there's forgiveness for those who are willing to come and repent before the Lord. And just like in this parable, God then closes us with the close of righteousness that we now receive because of what Christ has done. And we now are adopted as God's children, having the full privileges of being his children, which we don't deserve. He lets us know that he's not only glad, he's overjoyed that we have returned to him. And that's how God responds when you repent from your sins and come to him. I think this parable shows that no matter how low you may sink like this young son did, there's no sin, there's nothing that we can go do that we can't come back to the Lord and repent and get forgiveness from. No matter how awful, no matter how defiant, no matter how wretched your sin is, if you'll come to God with true repentance, desiring for forgiveness and to turn from your sins, He's always ready and willing to forgive you. Now you would think that the story would end there on that happy note, they lived happily ever after. The other two stories ended that way. The shepherd found his sheep, and everybody rejoiced, and they lived happily ever after. The woman found her coin, and everyone rejoiced, and they lived happily ever after. The father finds his son, and they rejoice, but there's more to this story, because remember who Jesus is speaking to. He's speaking to the Pharisees, and why is he even sharing this to begin with? Because the Pharisees brought this accusation to Jesus, why do you spend time with sinners? Jesus is showing them, here's why, because God loves sinful people and does everything he can to reach them, and I am God. But let me tell you one more thing that you don't realize. You do not have the heart of God towards lost sinners. So there's one more character in this story that is very important to note, and that is the older brother. Let's see what happens with the older brother and how it represents the Pharisees and what we can learn. Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, so he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and because he has received him safe and sound, your father has killed the fatted calf. But he was angry and would not go in. Therefore his father came out and pleaded with him. So he answered and said to his father, Lo, these many years I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I may make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came, who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive and was lost and is found. Notice what happens. The older son, he's in the field, he's working. He comes back to the house, and he hears the music playing. He hears the party going, and he's wondering what's going on. He calls a servant over, and he says, what's happening? And the servant, excited, says, hey, your younger brother is back. Your dad's thrown a party. He's killed the fatted lamb. Hey, or calf, come celebrate. But he doesn't. He's not pleased to find out that reality. In his response to his father, he shows his self-righteous attitude and his disdain for his brother. He says, These many years I've been serving you, I've never transgressed your commandment at any time, and yet you never gave me a young goat that I might make merry with my friends. But as soon as this son of yours came who has devoured your livelihood with harlots, you killed the fatted calf for him. Notice the brother thinks, I'm the one who deserves this, not this guy. This son of yours, notice he can't even call him his brother. 
his younger brother, this son of yours, see that sometimes with parents, your children, not our children, but you know, sometimes we want to you know, disassociate ourselves with someone that we're angry with. So this son of yours, he says, you know, look what he's done. He had all this money, and all he did is go waste it on harlots and partying. And you go throw a party for him, you never gave me a fatted calf that I could go and celebrate with my friends. Now, in spite of the older brother's attack, the father responds with love, with gentleness. He says, son, you're always with me, and all that I have is yours, but it was right that we should make merry and be glad, for your brother was dead and is alive again and was lost and is found. You know, the father's trying to help his son understand, what are you talking about? You always have everything. All that I have is yours. It's at your disposal. You're here in my home. But this son who was lost, he's now found. Who was dead, he's now alive. He's come back. And we should be happy and receive him and rejoice that he's now back with us. The older brother shows us that the sins of self-righteousness and pride can be just as fatal as the sins of the flesh. Jesus is holding up the older brother as a mirror to these Pharisees who prided themselves in their observance of the law. Notice one of the things that the son says is, I've never transgressed anything that you've told me to do, Father. That's exactly what the Pharisees thought. Oh, we're the ones who uphold the law all the time. They look with contempt on others who are not outwardly as good as they were. But Jesus shows them they're not keeping either of the greatest two commandments. Remember when the man comes to Jesus and says, what is the, the greatest commandment? Jesus says, love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Love your neighbors yourself. In the parable, the son's not doing either. He's not loving his father, and he's not loving his brother. And Jesus is ultimately revealing to these Pharisees, you know what? You don't keep the law at all. You want to claim that you're these great guys who do all this stuff. You haven't even kept the most important commandments, loving God and loving others. There's a supreme irony in this parable. The brother who was outside in sin comes home and is welcomed inside to a feast. The brother who had never strayed but was probably hungry after working all day, he remains outside angry. Everything that he needs is inside the house. And there's nothing keeping him from coming in except his own self-righteousness and pride where he won't enter in and join the feast. So these three parables answer the Pharisees' complaint that Jesus eats and spends time with sinners. Jesus spent time with lost people because that's the heart of God to reach them. God has done everything he can to seek and save those who are lost. He sent his only son to die for the sins of the world. And all lost sinners need to do is repent and receive the free gift of salvation that Jesus offers. And when a sinner does that, all of heaven rejoices. I think these three parables also reveal that the Pharisees didn't have God's heart for lost sinners. And sadly, too many people in the church world today are just like that. We don't have a heart for lost sinners like God does. We're more focused on kind of pushing them away and judging them and looking down upon them instead of recognizing, you know what, if not for the grace of God, that would still be me. I used to be that person. And we so soon forget that. I used to be doing that. I used to be that guy or that girl. I used to live that way, and now I don't, but it's not because of some wonderful thing in me. It's because of the grace of God, that he revealed himself to me, and that I've accepted him, and now he's changing my life. But I should now look on those people with disdain and look on those people thinking, I want nothing to do with them. I should see them as that used to be me, and I'm so grateful that someone was willing to love me enough to come to me and share the gospel with me, and so why am I now not willing to do that for them? Why do I not have the heart of God who desires that all would come to repentance? I get saddened in the church world when I see this pharisaical mindset towards those who are lost. 
Sadly, we're not effective in reaching them when we have that mindset because we've repelled them. The lost world doesn't want to be in a church full of pharisaical people where you come in and they think, well, <laughs> when you change your life this way, this way, this way, then we'll accept you. Instead of, you know what? Come. We're the place that's going to tell you what you actually need, and that is Jesus. Where else are you going to hear it? Where else are you going to discover what your true need is? It's not going to be found in the world. It's only going to be here. Hopefully we can show you the love of Christ and that you can accept what Christ has done, and then your life will be changed. You know, I think it's interesting, so much of Christianity is looking for a new president or new politicians or whatever to, to change the moral fabric of our society, but the reality is, that's not going to change it. What's going to change it is the church getting the gospel out to people, because the way people are going to change is when they accept Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells them, and their lives are changed. It doesn't matter what politician is in front of us. That's not going to change the moral fabric of our nation. It's going to be changed when the church reaches people with the gospel. And that should be our focus. I want us to close this morning, taking some time to do what we do at the first of every month. And that's just to remember what Christ has done for us by taking communion.